You're listening to SBS News. There is a proposal to pick up where we left off from the last COP27 and look at the details of a proposed loss and damage fund. This was an idea 30 years ago, really introduced by the smaller island nation states, Fiji, Tuvalu, the whole Pacific really there. In terms of where we're sitting today, it's 30 years on uh, since that idea was introduced. Is that, do you, do you see that as a central issue as far as you're concerned and what you're wanting to see here out of this COP28? In the context of uh, climate-induced displacement, relocation and migration, uh, we saw this year the Pacific Island Forum leaders uh, approve a a framework um, on uh, climate change, uh, migration and human security. Uh, PCC, we have been contributing to that, uh, the development of that framework, uh, looking at the different aspects and protocols uh, both spiritual and cultural that will need to be involved in that in that space. Um, but you know these are at the end uh, of of the spectrum. We still need that commitment to um, you know to maintaining the one point five degrees. Uh, earlier this year, um, our uh, Pacific Church leaders in their meeting in uh, in Majuro in the Marshall Islands said that unless we keep track and keep focused on um, on the mitigation. Uh, adaptation funding, loss and damage funding is almost like uh, 30, pieces, uh, 30 pieces of silver. And our General Assembly that just concluded uh, uh, a week ago also said that, uh, you know, in this case, it's blood money because the, it shows the, the, the desire by the uh, major fossil fuel uh, production uh, countries to not change and just sort of offer money to deal with the problem rather than stopping uh, this very important uh, catastrophe from taking place that will affect everyone on the planet, not just us in the Pacific. And in terms of the host nation, we've uh, seen some leaked briefing documents showing that there is uh, plans, desires to use this COP28 as a platform to close in on oil deals. How do you react to that? Yeah, uh, you know, it's a very tough decision for for me to come here, uh, knowing, uh, you know, the resistance that we are facing in terms of the fate of fossil fuels. I'm a, a champion for the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. And, um, you know, we had hoped that with the Pope, you know, at the same time, we, we've got to ensure that uh, uh, we don't just use these COPs or these COPs are not used for the purpose of doing business in the fossil fuel industry. We've seen in the past that uh, for uh, one uh, Pacific Island negotiator, particularly coming to COP26 in, uh, in Glasgow, for every Pacific negotiator, there were four fossil fuel uh, lobbyists coming in. So we know what we're up against, but we're not going to give out without a fight. There is a sense that there's also going to be a stock take that will take place. How do you see the significance of this COP28 coming where it is right now with the kind of uh, the situation where we're at right now in the world and also a proposal that you know, Australia enter in and maybe co-host a future COP28 with Pacific nations. How significant is this in particular COP28? Yes, absolutely. Um, the global stock take will tell us exactly where we're at. And, you know, this is, this is a wake-up call for the entire planet. This is something that we're seeing across the planet. 
Australia has seen the impacts and continues to see the impacts of climate change. Everywhere else in the world, it's happening. And this is a time for us to really make uh, a stand on what needs to happen and uh, how fast that needs to happen. I would hope that as uh, Australia bids for uh, COP31 um, uh, and, and hosting it and engaging with the Pacific to make it a Pacific, uh, a Pacific Australia COP as part of this relationship that we do have with Australia as part of the Pacific Islands Forum, uh, the relationships that uh, um, the current government have been building over the last uh, uh, year and a half since it came into power, um, that we see some real intention about the needs of our Pacific uh, communities being heard. So this is in terms of um, the engagement of First Nations people in Australia and Pacific diaspora in the planning and the lead up and the discussions and also listening to what Pacific Islands need. And this isn't, again, in terms of funding. We're talking about the changes that need to be made in order for our Pacific people to survive and to thrive just like everybody else. And about that, I mean, how how real is this issue? We, we talk about, yes, the recovery aspect from multiple disasters is, is, is a very real thing in the mines. But in terms of, you know, what, what's at stake here uh, for, for you, you're traveling, you've left your, your family behind, you're thinking about future, your children, you're thinking about your children. Um, where, do you, where, you, where do you sit when you think about um, this not, I mean, it's often framed as a, a security issue. Um, just give us a sense of that. Uh, different perspective that Pacific Islanders have on, on this issue that may be contrasted to uh, developed nations? You know, um, Pacific uh, Island leaders uh, in the 2050 strategy for the Blue Pacific Continent, which was uh, approved by uh, the forum leaders last year and launched, of which Australia is part of, have recognised that climate change is the single most significant security threat to our Pacific region. And that needs to be taken into account in the context of the geopolitical stuff that's going on in our region between China on one hand, the US, Australia, and others on the other side. Um, and for us in the Pacific, climate change is a security issue. Climate change is uh, the, the issue that is going to create conflict around resources uh, in our region. Climate change is what's going to, uh, you know, lead to uh, overcrowding uh, uh, islands from which, to which uh, people will migrate uh, from the, the low-lying atolls or move inland from the coast. And so we need to think about that. What that means is people run out of space. Uh, you know, we have some low-lying atolls in our, in our region uh, which, you know, are already under threat during the king tides, the spring tides, etc. And we need to think about that, what it means for people to have to leave their homes and in the context of climate change have actually no opportunity to return because those islands will be underwater. We're not talking about refugees who can go back uh, when there's a conflict has ended or uh, who can return post-disaster talking about old communities disappearing forever. 
the thought process has already begun with this idea of climate refugees, both the relocations in Fiji and this Tuvalu agreement uh, at the Pacific Islands Forum. Any uh, perspectives uh, that you can share on, on how, you, you, how we deal with such a scenario, how you're dealing with such a scenario? It's almost incomprehensible for people to think about having to move in that sense. Imagine uh, when you are born, uh, your parents, uh, you know, plant your umbilical cord, bury your umbilical cord under a, a, a seedling of a coconut tree or some other tree to root you in the community. And that understanding that you are part of the land, the trauma associated with having to leave that place, having to leave the graves of your family, having to move uh, is, is, is something that, you know, we are struggling to, to deal with. We have to develop the appropriate uh, psychosocial uh, responses that are not just uh, secular in that sense of being just purely psychosocial, but have to bring in the spiritual and cultural elements as well. Uh, we have to develop protocols uh, for for people to culturally move from one space and then enter into another place, uh, cultural protocols for those who will receive these people. And that takes a lot of development and planning that we still haven't got to yet. We're still trying to figure out what that looks like, and we're running out of time. So it's very important that every moment that we we're able to save in terms of time because of sea level rise, because of uh, you know the, the shifts that are taking place, uh, that gives us more time to, to prepare. Pacific people, because of their indigenous knowledge, because of their faith and spirituality, they are resilient people, but they're going through uh, particularly those who are already going through some serious uh, uh, trauma issues. And we can see that around uh, the extreme weather, the cyclones that we are having, uh, how people are asking those questions uh, of faith, of existence. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. It's not just a matter of identifying places to move and relocating. It's how we ensure that uh, that we are not taking, I mean, they're already being broken from having to leave their, their, their place that they call home, uh, how do we ensure that we are able to help them in that process of, of healing so that they can continue, you know, in, in, a, in a better way in their lives? There is, uh, you know, hopes resting on this COP28 that we'll, we'll see some real flesh on the bones, some real detail around what a loss and damage fund could look like. Economists say we're looking at a quantum of maybe at least a trillion dollars. Um, but our record of developed nations contributing to even the Green Climate Fund hasn't been that spectacular. What does success look like for you from this COP28? Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I can, you know, we're already, as you said, we're struggling with the, with the Climate Fund for adaptation, and I don't know how we're going to get support and to the loss and damage fund. But here is where there is a role to play because we see people at the state level, at the city level, uh, you know, getting involved. We see, uh, you know, industry, business getting involved, philanthropic uh, organizations getting involved. And so maybe that is also a way for us to, uh, to, to reach out and engage. In fact, the first amount that was given for a loss and damage fund was um, by Glasgow at a subnational level. Sorry, by Scotland at a, at, at a subnational level in, in COP26 in Glasgow. So I think we also need to look at that level as well. 
because, uh, you know, national policies are one thing, but we also have states and cities that can make a big impact on this, uh, in, this, um, in this search for funds. So it, it really is about the, uh, and you want to see detail. You want to see, uh, <laughs> you know, action as well. I guess that's the difficulty with the, uh, you know, these large level talks. It's a consensus and getting that real level of concrete action is tough. I cry almost at the end of every COP when I see our Pacific leaders and negotiators. They work hard. They work through the, you know, through throughout the year. Not just at the cops, but in the intersessional meetings, um, you know, in the middle of the year in Bonn, and then in the negotiations leading up to the cop, and then always at the last minute, the bigger countries come in, they negotiate amongst themselves, and they start watering down these these outcomes. Our Pacific people, our people that are at the forefront of climate change, they need a win. They need a win, you know, soon. And Australia's position has really evolved since, uh, you know, a decade ago when, uh, you know, climate change uh, started a whole round of prime ministers in a very short space of time in Australia at the Pacific Islands Forum, uh, a confirmation that, yes, Australia will rejoin the Green Climate Fund, um, that Tuvalu announcement and uh, more funding announced for um, smaller scale projects uh, on resilience and the like. What's your assessment of uh, where Australia sits in terms of fulfilling its, uh, you know, obligations to Pacific Island nation states on this on this very important issue? I had the, um, the pleasure of meeting uh, Minister Bowen before I left Canberra to to come to Dubai, and um, it's heartening to see the 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 response that we had in our discussions um, about. Uh, commitments to, to loss and damage about engaging with the Pacific. Um, he was at the Pacific uh, Climate Minister's Summit uh, that was earlier in the year. Um, but also the work that's, that they're trying to engage in at a domestic level. Because as I said, those funds and that assistance to, to our Pacific communities is, is, is important. But it's what changes take place at the domestic level in Australia that's going to be the, you know, the proof of the commitment of Australia uh, moving into clean energy, etc. And so, uh, you know, we're we're grateful to see that shift take place. We know that change doesn't happen overnight, but we really need to see some positive, big steps uh, happening very soon. Otherwise, it's not only the Pacific that's at risk, it's also Australia. And we've seen that with the bushfires and the floods that take place in, in, in Australia. We need to do this for everyone. You, you talked about it, the, uh, the treaty on um, the p- proliferation. You, there's also the youth activists in the Pacific that have been pushing for uh, climate justice to be taken to the International uh, Court of uh, Justice. Uh, you know, how do you see all these actions coming together uh, in terms of really getting, as you say, a big win for the Pacific? Now, the fossil fuel non-proliferation, the um, advisory opinion at the International Court of Justice, uh, these are a strong uh, attempts by our Pacific people and by our partners, our you know those who are supporting this work around the world, uh, because it took a UN vote, General Assembly vote, to get that advisory opinion to go to the International Court of Justice. So it's not just the Pacific, and it's not just us that are suffering, but we see a massive shift now taking place. Um, my challenge is, uh, and and this is the challenge that we see that. 
these uh, processes uh, are showing that at the moment, the UNFCCC process is not working well. Uh, you know, this is COP28. Uh, uh, it's been 30 years, three decades we've been working on this. And to not move uh, the world on this important issue, uh, in some places we've gone back uh, from mandatory changes that need to be made to voluntary national uh, contributions to be made. Um, you know, and we're starting to see a lot of conversation now about uh, more litigation because you know the voluntary steps are not working. And so this is a, a reminder to to the to the world and to to the big uh, polluting countries that if this process doesn't work, we are looking at alternatives. And the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, the advisory opinion, um, the work of the UN Human Rights uh, Special Rapporteur on Climate Justice and Human Rights, these are all mechanisms outside of the UNFCCC, uh, which we hope can put more pressure um, on those polluting countries that need to make the changes that, uh, that have to happen.